Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Katie. One of my favorite ETH uh, free memories is my, one of my kids was baptized here. We were listening to people getting baptized, and he said to me, hold my watch. And he just came forward and got baptized. It was an awesome experience. Some people were saying in the green room, why are you in such a good mood? Because the University of Michigan crushed Michigan State yesterday, righted a huge evil that happened last year, and now we're ranked second in the nation. God is good and on his throne. Hey, I don't usually do this, but I went back and listened to my sermon two weeks ago. I was just kind of pumping up the number of views on the sermon. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I wanted to clear up one thing that kind of struck me as I listened to the sermon. Uh, I mentioned Braille Linda School System in my sermon, um, and I just want to say our experience with Braille Linda School was great. We absolutely loved it. All three of our kids went through it. My experience with the school board has been great. I think all you can ask of leaders is to listen to your concerns, and they've done that. Uh, I find them to be very open, very concerned, very giving people. So I just wanted to clear up one quick little thing. We've been talking about self-talk. We started this whole series with Psalm 103, where David said, when you think of God's benefits, where does your self-talk go? Remember, he said, when you think of benefits, I want you to start with spiritual benefits. The fact that all your iniquities have been dealt with. The fact that you're going to be... um, risen from the dead, the fact that God crowns you with love, loving kindness and compassion, then gives you good things. As Americans, we tend to flip the list, and we tend to start with material goods and work our ways down. Remember Psalm 73, we said that the psalmist um, was in a negative spiral in his self-talk, and he went into the sanctuary, and that's where he got out of his negative self-talk. And we talked about making this place a sanctuary by uh, changing it up a little bit so that you could put your in the right frame of mind. Maybe that means changing how you dress. Maybe it means bringing a leather Bible instead of just looking at your phone. Maybe it means not bringing in a hot beverage. Uh, Maybe it means coming in early, five minutes early, and just steadying your heart. And then we jumped into the book of James, and James said, what's your self-talk when hard times hit? Do you think that God is punishing you somehow? Or rather, James would say, God is calling you to a divine appointment. Then he said, when you hear that true religion, the sight of God is caring for orphans and widows in distress, what's your self-talk? Do you believe that that's what something you should be involved in? Or is that what other people do? And then we got on to the issue of the tongue. James would say, what's your self-talk like when you think about other people and describe other people? Then many of us did that horrible week of no negative. Remember that week? It was horrible. We, the Mielhoff family literally had to take a mulligan one day because we had been doing so poorly that whole day. We said, okay, we need to like reboot on this thing. It, it's easy to get into negative speech patterns. Now we're going to get into what is arguably the biggest theme of the book of James. You could argue that your language is a key theme for James, but now he gets into, which if you just added up pure words dedicated to a topic, James now is going to talk about what is your relationship to money? 
What is your relationship to success? And just know, I'm the interim teaching pastor. Uh, the elders do not know necessarily what I say up here. They're, they're not vetting my talks or saying, hey, can you slip in a quick talk about finances? They have no idea. But to be true to the book of James, James is very concerned with how we deal with affluence and um, the American dream. So let's take a look at uh, what the passage has to say. So stand with me. If you can't stand, just put yourself in a posture of reception. And let's hear what the Word of God has to say to us as American Christians in this modern context. This is what he says. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. So you may be seated. Um, So remember I said the book of James, one way to conceptualize it, it's the earliest New Testament book. In other words, when the followers of Christ were hearing Jesus' teachings, now it's their turn to write about those teachings. So you get the application points of major themes within Jesus' ministry. So in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, Jesus says this, But first, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, the context of chapter 6 is a conversation about being worried about money, food, and clothing. So often when you read the words of Jesus and you kind of think to yourself, but that can't be what he means, it's a good clue that we're not interpreting Jesus as we should be. In other words, seek first uh, the kingdom of God and he'll give you all the food, clothing, and food that you can uh, think of. Well, obviously that doesn't happen. Some of you right now can't pay your bills. We have Christians who are in dire situations. So Jesus doesn't mean seek first the kingdom of God and I'll give you everything that you need. We just know that that doesn't happen. So what he's saying is seek first my kingdom and the, um, the grip that uh, materialism has on you will be broken. He wants you to reorient what you worry about and how you judge yourself is what I think Jesus is getting at. Does my kingdom have top priority in your life? As you pursue it, don't judge my goodness on whether you have food, drink, or clothing. That's what King David was trying to get after. No, no, no. Think in terms of forgiveness, loving kindness, compassion, and then we'll be secure in God's love. Now, James is going to give you his interpretation of what Jesus was talking about in this famous passage that we just looked at. This is what James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. What James is critiquing is this arrogant attitude that I have my business plan in place. I know exactly what to do in the American life to be successful. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. Uh, I know what classes to take to get into a good university. I know what my business model is. Uh, I have my whole life planned out. And that is what James is taking a look at, saying, where's the kingdom of God in all of this? When you make your life plans, where is God's kingdom and his priorities? Do they have the power to reorient your business plan or what you think you are going to do in the next five to ten years? 
He goes on to say this, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now, he can't be critiquing planning. The book of Proverbs is all about be wise in how you plan. He's not even critiquing money. Remember, it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And there were a lot of wealthy Christians, uh, Christian benefactors, and you could look at a person like John Wesley or Charles Spurgeon who were wealthy because they get royalties from their sermons. So he isn't critiquing the fact of wealth or planning. It's this arrogant attitude that you can plan out your entire life on these basic 10 steps and that you have your whole life figured out and yet God is saying, but wait a minute. Do I have the ability to interrupt your game plan? Do I have the inability to erupt what you think your life is going to be like? Do I have a say in your daily planning and thinking about how you're going to spend your gifts and abilities? Your boasting is evil. And so I think it's a critique of the American dream. James Turslow Adams in 1932 came up with this phrase, the American dream, and this is how he describes it. The American dream is a national ethos, it's a national consciousness of the United States, a set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success and an upward social mobility is what he said is the American dream achieved through hard work. So Americans, you think if you work really hard, you're going to be successful. You think success is you always move up the corporate ladder. It always is bigger and better. You never go backwards. And I think James is saying, but Maybe God wants you to go backwards. Maybe God wants you to give up the American dream to pursue the kingdom dream and the kingdom priorities that he has laid out. So, as Americans, we can take a look at purchasing houses. We start by buying a what they call a starter home. This is a very modest home with always the assumption that we're going to do bigger and better, that you're always going to get a bigger house and maybe get a vacation home. And what was true of the 1960s is absolutely true today. I'm so thankful for a godly wife. In North Carolina, we lived in a 2,200-square-foot house on a cul-de-sac with a backyard that you could play wiffle baseball in. Well, God called us to Biola. He said, go to Biola. We come here, we go from 2,200 square feet to uh, 1,300 square feet, and we paid three times as much for it. Oh, I couldn't believe it. When I was standing there and the woman, uh, our realtor, was saying, this is how much this house costs, I was like, in Monopoly money? I mean, what? Are we going to have to sell Park Place to get this? I mean, what? So, so thankful for a godly wife who said, okay, I'm willing to uproot. All of our kids were born in North Carolina. Noreen's whole family is on the East Coast. And that she was willing to go West Coast because of kingdom priorities. I think that's what God is saying. Do I have permission to interrupt your well-kept plans at whatever stage of life that you're at? Man, we've gone crazy when it comes to high school, college. And I'm a college professor. We have this idea that you are to load up on AP classes. Every AP class you can take, you take because that's going to get you in the best university, right? America's best colleges. I think, personal opinion, we've ruined high school for many students. They study so much that psychologists say it's not good for them. What little sleep they're getting, we put all of this pressure. So when students finally get to the university, they're already burnt out. They're already burnt out because of what high school did in all these different AP classes. You know what's really funny? Biola University doesn't even take weighted scores from AP classes. 
So all of that work, right? But it's this idea that if I get really good grades in all my AP classes, I can go to the really best college so I can get the really best job. And God is saying, wait a minute. Are you really that arrogant to think it works that way? And by the way, in that whole great discussion, where was my kingdom? Did you ever sit down with your child and say, hey, should you even go to college? Should that even be what you do? Or what's God laid on your heart? Now, now, all right, to be honest, we said to our three kids, you're going to college, okay? (laughs) Dad, should we pray about it? No, okay, you know, later. In four years, let's pray about it, okay? But right now, but but again, I I, I think what we need to do is to sit down and say, God, what do you want us to do? What should be the next step? And James is going to lay out what he thinks are two correctives in this. I think this has had devastating impact on us. Let me mention three results that the American dream has had on us that I think are not good. Number one, it's keeping up with the Joneses. Fascinating study done on neighbors that surround a person who has won the lottery. Okay, so neighbors of a lottery winner are more likely to drive themselves to bankruptcy, says a Canadian-based study that looks at the self-destructive side of keeping up with the Joneses. So this is what the study said. And the bigger the prize, the more likely neighbors in the postal code were to go broke. In fact, for each 1,000 a neighbor won, bankruptcies rose by 2.4%, the three co-authors wrote. In other words, somebody in the neighborhood wins the lottery and just does all of these great additions or fixing up the house or buying new cars, and the people in the surrounding neighborhood say, well, I'm not going to be outdone. Right? So now it's time for us to get new cars and to do additions to our house. And it just causes massive havoc. We have a friend in North Carolina that had a house that was killing his marriage. Killing it. Uh, what, what it took to keep that home financially was killing their marriage. So he made a heroic decision, him and his wife, to downsize. So they did. They sold that house and bought a smaller house. And he said the most embarrassing part was moving into the new neighborhood. Because people would say, hey, where are you from? Are you from out of town? No, we're actually from town. We're just, we actually lived in Lockmere Highlands. And people were like, Lockmere Highlands? And you're moving here? Did you lose your job? I'm like, no, no, have the same job. It just wasn't, that house wasn't good for us. And, and it was so bizarre. But when we first moved here, and we wonder why we had the housing crisis here, right? Is when Nori and I moved here, we met with financial planners, and they said, listen, you can qualify for such a bigger loan than the one that you're going to take. I'm so grateful for a wife who was a business major. I was a theater major, right? She was... Well, let me think about what I learned in mime class. Um, Okay, and Nori's like... Noreen's like, we don't need this big a loan because there could be problems paying this off. No, no, we, want, we don't want that loan. And they pushed and pushed. And now we know that's what caused the housing crash in California. People just lost their houses. This attitude of, well, I should get the biggest house possible is part of the American psyche. Okay, now let's get on the controversial side. In 19... So there's one topic I talk about with my students that is the most controversial topic I discuss with them. It outweighs reading the Quran. It outweighs racial issues. It it, it is uh, the most controversial issue. And here's what it is. In 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson came up with an idea. In 1965, he said this. Imagine that a race is about to happen and you're all going to be in the race. Uh, One day before the race... 
we discover that there's actually been an underground bunker that people have been held captive in. They didn't choose to be there, but they've been there for years and years and years and years. And the day before the race, we discover they're in the bunker and we bring them out of the bunker. They're malnourished. Uh, they don't have great clothes. Um, and we say to them, hey, listen, just be comfortable. We've got a big race tomorrow, so you just get settled in. And they're like, well, we would like to actually be in the race. We would like to do that. And you're like, what? What? Right, so now I say to my students, you're the race organizers. What do we do? Do we allow them to race? All my Biola students will say, yeah, let's let them race, sure. I said, well, listen, guys, they're not going to do very well. They don't have the right equipment. They're malnourished. They've not been training like you've been training. It's going to be a slaughter. And that's where you start to see the American dream take effect, right? Because they say, well, but we're letting them race. Yeah, but they're going to get killed. What if we did this? What if we gave them a head start? And they're like, no. No. Why? Because I've been training for this race, and why am I getting penalized? Hey, what if we did this? What if we said we let them race, and what if one surprises us and a person comes in 10th? 10th in the race with no training, um, male nurse, and no equipment like you have, but they came in 10th. Couldn't we treat that 10th place as third place and give that person the bronze? My students are like, no. And you know what he called it? You know the name of what he called it. He called it affirmative action. Right? Now, listen, we're not going to debate affirmative action. Right? It's been debated in the courts. Right? But here's what it shows me about my Biola students. Hey, it's my turn to live the American dream, and I'm not setting that aside for anybody. Listen, bummer, they were in the bunker, but what concern of that is uh, of me? Right? Here's what James would say. You are to care for orphans and widows in distress. You are to care for the people in the bunker. And if that means it affects you and it's finally your turn to do the race and you have to um, give up some things, James would say you give it up for the unfortunate. And it shows me that my students are like, no, no, no. Now it's my turn to get the American dream and I'm not letting anything get in the way of that. And that's what I think James wants to critique. This is what Lyndon B. Johnson said. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say you are free to compete with all the others and still just believe that you've been completely fair. It's not fair to just bring them into the race and not, let, not give them some kind of help or compensation for years where they didn't want to be in the bunker, yet they were in the bunker. Most controversial thing we talk about in my classroom, and I think it shows that, hey, this is my time to get the American dream, and I'm not letting anything, even a concern for the poor, central to the kingdom of God, is going to stop me. Here's a really sad thing that I think has happened. Men and women, we've lost idealism today. Our students are so practical, right? Um, they they, um, they want to do this and that and this and that. And I want to say, hey, how about changing the world? And they're like, oh, no. How, how about um, going to Teach for America for a couple years and be in the inner city and use your gifts and abilities? Well, no, because I want to graduate and I want to do this and this and this and this and this. Now, I love Biola. We constantly put before our students, hey, how about doing clean water wells? I love that our nursing students at Biola, they go and spend time in Rwanda, right, helping um, serve in these makeshift hospitals, right? But a lot of our students, we have beat it out of them. Right? We have said, 
listen, no more head up in the sky. You need to be practical. What major will get you a job? Not what major God's calling you to. What major will best get you a job? And we always see those lists, the 10 top worst majors and the 10 best majors to get a job. And God's saying, no, wait a minute. Hello, what about the Great Commission? What about helping the poor? What about helping uh, racial injustice? How about sex trafficking in the world? Why not go with International Justice Mission? Yeah, you have to raise your support, but let's go ahead and do that. I think we've lost idealism. I'm not the only one to notice this. There's a secular group called um, uh, One Republic that wrote an amazing song called Counting Stars, and they were critiquing this American loss of idealism. And here's how the song goes. So when he says, everything that kills me makes me feel alive, everything that would kill my career is making me feel alive. I'm I'm not going to count money anymore. I'm going to count stars. Men and women, we're raising a generation that doesn't count stars anymore. In the 1960s, we had the student volunteer movement that said, I'm going to put my career on hold. We're going overseas. We're taking a great commission seriously. We're going to go do that. We're going to help the impoverished. We're going to help the poor. And they took it seriously. And it started a huge revival within the United States. Now listen, I don't want to be a hypocrite, okay? I have three kids, two who are still in college. And I suppose if both of them came to me and said, God, uh, said, Dad, God, Dad. (laughs) At home, they have to call me God. But that's... (laughs) Noreen calls me my liege. But that's, that's... probably getting too personal. Um, If they came up to me and said, Dad, God's called me to be a Christian sculptor. My first, see, this is what James is critiquing. My first response wouldn't be, wow, that's really cool. Well, let's talk about that. How do you know he's called you that? Why this? My first response would be, does it come with dental? (laughs) Right? That is my first response. And I think that's what One Republic is critiquing. They're saying we've all become such capitalists. Money's the most important thing. Our bank accounts is what defines us. Upward social mobility is the thing. And they're saying, no, maybe we need to pull back and start becoming idealists and romanticists. Again, again, the purpose of college is not to get your children a job. That was never the purpose of a university. The purpose of a university was to introduce them to philosophy and history and art and politics and communication to be well-rounded citizens within the republic. That was the purpose of college. And we virtually have choked that out today. So people do say about Biola University, really? 30 hours of Bible? We got to take 30 hours of Bible? Yeah, because our, our job isn't just to make you all pastors. Our job is to integrate knowledge with the scriptures. And yeah, we get that it's kind of inconvenient taking that many hours of Bible, but we don't think uh, that we're just a trade union. That's not the purpose of a university. I think James would say, don't be so enamored by the American dream. Now, um, so let's take a moment and reflect. As you think about your life, do you think more about God's kingdom or do you think more about the American dream? And does the Holy Spirit have permission to interrupt your plans and throw you a curveball that maybe he wants you to do that was totally unexpected? How willing would you be to go with the curveball? So let's take a couple of minutes and reflect and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our hearts.
So James gives two correctives in two parts. Here's his first corrective. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James says you have no guarantee of tomorrow. Remember Jesus, when interacting with the crowds, would say, Today is the day of salvation. I will not guarantee you tomorrow. It is so healthy for us to say, I don't know if I'm going to be here next year. I don't know that. And if I only had one year left, what would be my priorities? By the way, life expectancy within the Roman Empire was 30 years. So these uh, 12 tribes that are dispersed, you're looking at a life expectancy not of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, of 30 short years is what these believers were looking at, and it energized them. So the first corrective, James is saying, you're arrogant in that you think, here's my retirement plans, because I'm going to be around till I'm 80, 90. Right? Now again, remember we said James isn't critiquing planning. The whole book of Proverbs is about planning. But it's the arrogance of saying, I know I'm going to be around when I'm 60, 70, 80. And I want this kind of a nest egg. And, I, and by the way, what kind of a nest egg you need, I think, would be up for a fair critique. So again, he's not against planning. But this arrogant attitude that you're going to be around year after year after year. He said, no, 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 that's not it. Uh, here's a woman who took a photograph of herself starting at age 6. She took one photograph a year until she was 68. Watch this uh, video. That's your life. Boom. Old Testament says your, your life is like a runner that goes by. That's it. It's like a withering flower is your life. That energized New Testament believers. They were energized by two things. One, they knew their life most likely was going to be short, right? Roughly 30-year life expectancy. Second, they expected Jesus to come right around the corner. We're, we're going to critique that next week, why Jesus didn't come back. And, and the role that the rich played in it. But, but they expected their life to be short. So how do I maximize my life thinking about eternity and me standing in front of the judgment seat of Christ and giving an account for my life in front of Jesus in a short amount of time? So Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Men and women, it's really good to think, um, you know, what if I had a year? What if I had five? What is it that I want to accomplish? What, what um, bitter disagreements do you have with people that it's just time to put it to bed? If you knew you had one year left, maybe you'd pick up the phone and call somebody and say, listen, this has been going on long enough. Right? Maybe for some of us, it's church involvement. You've been kind of on the edges, and you really haven't gotten involved. So how many of you, when you heard Katie say, uh, go to one, invest in one, and bring one, you just kind of thought, oh, we'll go to one. Right? I mean, I, I, I was sitting there, uh, uh, we'll come. But to be, you know, be part of Rooted, you know, it's like, come on, who's got time for that? And I think that's what we're going to have to answer for, is Jesus is going to say, what you knew of my kingdom... How much of that was part of your priorities in this life? Corrective number two. Instead, you ought to say, 
If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. In other words, start by saying, what does God want me to do? So I think it is great for high school students to say, does God want me to go to college? And not just assume that that's part of what he wants me to do. Or does he want me to go to college right out of high school? I think there'd be many students I have who would greatly benefit from a year or two not being in school so there'd be more of an appreciation of school or they're just not mature enough to head into a college classroom. But to stand before God, even as a junior high student, a high school student, college student, um, a person in retirement years, to stand before God and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And how should I spend my years, how many I have? Again, it's, not, it's great to start a business. It's great to be a sculptor. It's great to do these things. But to say, God, do I give you permission to interrupt my plans? I think that's what James is trying to get at. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God, I think is what James is saying. Uh, this is a fascinating letter. Uh, three plagues hit the Roman Empire. They were devastating plagues. Upwards to 35% mortality rates hit the Roman Empire. Think of the Zika virus on steroids. Romans did not know what to do. If you got sick, they immediately just put you outside into the streets to protect the rest of the family. Roman emperors were frustrated. We have letters from Roman emperors imploring Romans to care for Romans, and Romans wouldn't do it. They just freaked out, like, you're sick, get out of here. Well, now the church had a decision to make. What do we do? So you know what the church heroically did? I mean, imagine being a pastor of a small church saying, okay, guys, what do we do? I guess do we just protect ourselves and stay safe? Or do we go out into the streets and help these people that are dying of the plague? And in the droves, they went out and gathered these people dying of the plague. And many, many Christians died. This Easter letter from Bishop Dionysus is writing to comfort people who have lost loved ones. This is what he said. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. It's a big curveball to the New Testament church, the plague of Rome. And yet they responded and said, well, this is what we're going to do. See, at the end of our lives, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus is going to say, what did you do with my kingdom? And at that point, I hope we don't say, and by kingdom you meant what? I think Jesus would say, boy, you should have figured that out while you were alive. So Lewis says this, you've got to read this essay called The Weight of Glory. For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will be open at last. Many of us deeply want to be affirmed. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be recognized. And in the end of our life, uh, Lewis said, you will be by Jesus. Jesus is the only person who matters at the end of your life. What Jesus thought of your life. So if God was saying, be a Christian sculptor, and you had enough courage to actually do it, Jesus will say at the end of your life, awesome. You listened to my voice. This was great. Well, you know, I lived in a pretty crummy apartment. My parents weren't overly thrilled with it. Yeah, but you did what I asked you to do. That's awesome. So let me be really honest with you, transparent. You ever been haunted by a conversation? 
Here's one that haunts me. I just finished my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. UNC Chapel Hill was ranked third when I went there in the nation in my discipline, communication theory. So I go, I graduate, uh, I, now I'm ready to go. I've already been contacted by Wheaton. I interviewed at Wheaton University. Biola was later in the future. Uh, uh, Wheaton offered me a job. I'm locked and loaded. I've got books I want to write. I'm going to start my career. I'm going to get tenure. I'm going to be a professor. Done. A guy asked to have lunch with me, a Campus Crusade for Christ staff fellow. I sit down with him over lunch. I didn't know what was coming. He said, hey, congratulations on the PhD. I said, well, thank you very much. He said, hey, I've got, I, I want to bounce an idea off of you. I said, oh, like what? He said, University of Moscow. I said, oh? He said, yeah, Tim, with your PhD as an American, at the University of Moscow, every door would be open to you. You could change that university. We love Americans, and they love PhDs. So, yeah, you could teach at a secular university. It would be pretty hard for you to make an impact because, you know, secular universities aren't crazy about Christians. And, yeah, you can go to a Christian university and teach and, yeah, have an impact, of course. But University of Moscow, would you pray about it? Men and women, I looked at him right in the eye, and I said, yes. Yes. And in my heart, I was like, are you kidding me? Univers- no, no, no. So I, I didn't even pray about it. I said, hey, thanks. Enjoyed lunch. Right? Drove home, walked in. I said, Noreen said, what was lunch about? I said, he wanted me to think about the University of Moscow. Noreen was like, oh, awesome. I was like, go away. <laughs> and excuse me, it's my liege. Right? <laughs> here's, here's what I think James is saying. Tim. It was okay for you not to go. It was okay for you not to go to the University of Moscow. You're at Biola University. It's been a great fit for you, your family. You've had an impact. Um, it's, it's, it's a great fit. I just wanted to know, were you willing? And the answer was, no. No. I didn't even pray about it. That kind of haunts me 15, 16 years later. So men and women, I think God is saying, hey, I get your planning, I, 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 and it's great. Do I have any say in what you plan, and can I interrupt your plans, even if it's inconvenient? So we're going to talk about that next week. Um, James is going to really critique the rich, and, and let me just give you a preview so that nobody comes. <laughs> if we went to a website called RateMyIncome.com and you put in your money that you make, college students, put in your summer income, you are going to be, I promise you, in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world because you're being compared to everybody. Farmers in Zimbabwe. So men and women, when Jesus says, I pity the rich, he's talking to us. So his critique of the rich is going to be a critique of us. So, let me pray for us. Stand with me. Father, your, your word says, seek first the kingdom. And, uh, Father, we confess as Americans, uh, we get distracted sometimes by status and money and power and prestige. But, Father, we want to have hearts that you can interrupt, you can um, redirect if you want to. 
So, Lord, we give you permission to do that, to be our vision as we move forward. We pray in Jesus' name.